Welcome to In the Bible with Jason Worf, recorded at the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're in the middle of a series called Back to Basics, and we're looking at the most basic truths in the Bible. We've already explored the scriptures, salvation, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, and today's message is called The Second Coming. There's kind of three aspects of salvation that God is bringing to us. The first would be um, freedom from the penalty of sin, salvation from the penalty of sin. And that happens, uh, of course, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And then the second would be freedom from the power of sin. And that salvation is, uh, is possible through the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And then lastly, God wants to save us from the presence of sin. And that's a, a promise that he's given us that will happen when Jesus comes and redeems us as his own. In Revelation 3, 11, Jesus made the promise, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He also says in Revelation 16, 15, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then in Revelation 22, 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And he goes on again in verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. And in verse 20, he says, surely I am coming soon. And John replies, amen. Come Lord Jesus. This is, uh, it's a promise he's made. He's going to save us from the presence of sin. He's going to redeem us. There's lots of ideas about how the second coming works and uh, what the end of the world is about. And some think it's going to be some cataclysmic event, um, the end of the species. Some think it's going to be some uh, age of peace. Um, Psychics and occultists teach that aliens are going to come in UFOs and bring peace to the world. Evangelical churches uh, teach a secret rapture where the righteous are going to vanish, and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation for everybody else that didn't get to escape that through the, through the secret rapture. And um, there's uh, all kinds of stuff that people talk about, wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and, and natural disasters. Now, some Christians teach that there's going to be a spiritual second coming. And that, that second coming happens when Jesus comes into our hearts. And there's all kinds of different ideas about what the second coming really is. And the question we have to ask is, what is truth? A few weeks ago, we talked about how to find truth. Where do you find truth? In the Word of God, in Scripture. Uh, but we also need to ask some other questions. Um, when can we expect these promises to be fulfilled? That's a good question to ask. And then another one is, uh, what will the second coming be like? And I want to explore these ideas with you today. In the first half of Matthew 24, we, um, we see Jesus clarifying the signs of his soon return. What's it going to look like when he returns? And he he talks about earthquakes and natural disasters and diseases and all these kinds of things that are happening. And he says that he calls these things birth pains. It's like the earth itself is giving birth to Jesus. And as just like a pregnant lady, the birth pains get closer and closer and more intense um, as the baby is getting closer. And and we can find throughout the past uh, hundred years or more this frequency and intensity of natural disasters um, increasing. And more than that, though, we know that we are in the time of the end 
Because prophecy tells us that we're in the time of the end. Daniel 2 shows the progression of kingdoms. And it says, in the days of these kings, uh, Jesus would come and set up his kingdom. That rock cut out from the mountainside would come and crush all the other kingdoms. And his kingdom would fill the earth. And we're in the days of those kings. That European uh, division of all these kingdoms is our reality today. And has been for some time. And, and then if you look in Daniel 7 and 8, you'll find that that narrows even more. Um, reminds us that there's a little horn power that would uh, receive a deadly wound. And that happened just a couple hundred years ago. So we know that we're getting really close. And then uh, you'll find that the only thing left in Daniel 7's prophecy is Daniel 7:27, where it says that the, his kingdom... The kingdom will, the dominion rather, will be given to the saints. That's the only thing that's left is the dominion being given to the saints. Now, just to add emphasis to these prophecies, we find in, uh, in Jesus' statement, Matthew 24, um, that uh, verse 29, he says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, that time when the little horn power would, would persecute God's people, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And we've seen that actually happen. This is one of those things we can nail down in time. May 19, 1780, um, there was this dark day it was um, from Maine all the way down to New Jersey. Uh, people in the middle of the day were lighting candles so that they could see. Uh, it was a significant enough phenomenon that it was reported throughout the, the world by news outlets all around the world. And it was reported that the sun wasn't visible, and that night, in places, the moon turned red. But also in 1833, we find the, the great Leonid shower. Uh, a Leonid shower is just the... Uh, stars falling kind of look. And, and you, you look for shooting stars. Some nights you see a few. Some nights you see a lot. And if you go, go online, you look for Leonid, uh, you'll find that there's a Leonid shower fairly often. Um, every few months you get um, an increase in these. And in 1833, um, that particular meteor shower remains the largest meteor shower in history that we know of. There was 100,000 meteoroids entering the atmosphere every hour for nine hours straight. Uh, just for comparison, subsequent Leonids have produced in the hundreds or maybe thousands per hour, but never nearly as many as in 1833. And it was this event that propelled William Miller and the dark day that propelled William Miller and the whole group of, of Millerites, Adventists, to, to talk about Jesus' second coming back in the 1830s and 1840s. Um, these signs in the heavens are significant in that they point to the, the end of this great persecution that the little horn power would have. And we know that the next thing after the little horn in um, Daniel 7 and 8 is the kingdom being given to the saints. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus also shares a, another sign of his soon return. And he says in, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's his promise. And when we look at the, the story of the gospel, we find that all throughout the dark ages, the Bible was available to very few, the elite, the wealthy, um, priests, people in the church. And that was about it. Um, but 
there is a prophecy in Revelation that the two witnesses would rise up. And in 1830, well, right around the 1800s, the, the turn of the 19th century, the British Bible Society, then the American Bible Society began to publish and translate the Bible into all these different languages. As of 2014, the Bible, the full Bible had been translated into 531 languages worldwide. And parts of the Bible were translated into lots of other languages. That's in 2014. Just six years later, in 2020, we translated the whole Bible into 704 languages, with parts of the Bible in another 1,160 languages around the world. The gospel message has more potential today than it ever has, and yet there's still more to be done. There are over 3,000 languages, a billion people on the earth that don't have access to the Bible in their native tongue. And so there's a group of Bible translators around the world that have a project where they're wanting to translate the Bible and get it into people's hands. Everybody in the world have access to the Bible by, eight, uh, by uh, 2033. I think that's an exciting idea. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the sanctuary, and I introduced this idea of the feasts being prophetic, that they weren't just uh, a ritual activity, but that each one represented something in Christ's ministry. The first three feasts in the early time of the year were pointing to Jesus' earthly ministry, and the, the last four feasts in the, the, the summer and fall were pointing towards Jesus' heavenly ministry. And we, we talked about how we're right now in the Day of Atonement period, the time of judgment, and the next next thing, the next event is going to be the Feast of Booths. And that's going to happen when Jesus comes to take us to those rooms he's prepared for us. You can find in John 14. Now, no one knows for certain the date. We can be certain that the date is near, but we don't know exactly when it's going to be. Uh, is it going to be next week? Uh, is it going to be next year? Is it going to be 10 years from now? We, the Bible doesn't tell us a date to point to. But we can know the general time frame. In Mark 13, 28 to 33, Jesus says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Don't sleep is his message. Keep awake. Now, I hope that just the very brief look that we've had will demonstrate that Jesus' coming is near. We're not waiting for millennia for Jesus to come anymore. It's really close. Um, but Paul counsels us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Because we know Jesus' return is soon, we're going to live a little differently and in Revelation 3, 3, he says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. That's a, a really cool promise because it implies that if we do watch, that we will know um, that Jesus' return is right here. Satan would only be too happy to create some distraction from our watching, to point us in a wrong direction so that while we're looking over here, something else, the, what's really important is happening over there. And the Bible tells us in Mark 13, 31, or 21 to 23, 
If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is over there, do not believe. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all these things beforehand. Pay attention. I'm telling you ahead so that you're not surprised. Throughout history, Satan has counterfeited everything that God has put out there. God gives a tree of life, and Satan shows up on the tree of knowledge of good and evil and says, hey, look at this. This is going to give you better life than God can give you. He's got an alternative to everything. Um, there's uh, the, the law of love that God gives us to, to, to make our lives wonderful and joyful. And Satan says, no, you don't need that. Um, who, who needs the, the law? He obscures it instead with traditions and with formalized religion and, and gives us a distraction. The Bible clearly states the seventh day is the Sabbath, but Satan has convinced most people, um, at least in the Christian world, that Sunday is a day that is holy and set apart. And so it doesn't surprise when we look at the subject of the second coming that Satan has distractions, things that aren't true that would get our focus away from what God has really designed. So look at um, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and you'll find that the Bible predicts Satan will give an alternative, a distraction. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So it's really important that we understand what the Bible says about the second coming because it's possible for us to be taken off guard um, when we're not paying attention to what God has designed. We'll end up paying attention to what Satan has counterfeited. So what will the coming be like? What will Jesus' return look like? You can find um, lots of, uh, of details about this in the Bible. Acts 1.11 is a really good place to go. Remember the story that Jesus is uh, hanging out with his, uh, with his disciples for about 40 days after his resurrection. And during that time, he's teaching and, and, and uh, encouraging them. And, and then one day, um, the Bible tells us that uh, he rose from the earth and he went up into the sky and disappeared in the clouds. And then there's two angels that appeared at the disciples' side. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Which Jesus is that, you have to ask? Well, spend a little bit of time looking at that time after the resurrection, and you'll find in Luke 24, 36 to 43, that Jesus is appearing to his disciples. And in, in this uh, story, Jesus asks for them to give him some food. And, and he says, touch me, touch the wounds in my hands and in my side. Um, he, he eats food, demonstrating that he's not some apparition, not some spirit. He's the same Jesus that died, and now he's resurrected. And the, the angels tell us that same Jesus, the real person, Jesus, is coming again. Not a spiritual coming, not an apparition, but a real physical Jesus is coming again. And how is he coming? In the same way he left. He went up into the sky, and the next time he's coming back from the sky to earth. So let's look at a few characteristics. First of all, Jesus' coming is visible. It's going to be seen by people. Matthew 24, 27, and 30 say, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And in Revelation 1, 7, he says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. 
even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. He's also coming in a way that we're going to hear. The Bible says it's going to be audible. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that he's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. It was appropriate to have a trumpet special music this morning. Thinking about the second coming makes me think about trumpet calls. And I don't know if you noticed it, but trumpets can be kind of loud. And some people don't like them because of that. I understand. It's okay. Especially when I'm not playing in tune and it it sounds bad. Um, But I think this is going to be one of those loud trumpet calls that you're going to be excited about. And it's going to be amazing. The Bible and in tune. The Bible talks about God's voice, and then it talks about the angels with this like rushing, roaring kind of sound. Sound is featured a lot when it comes to Jesus' second coming. I don't think it's going to be something we're going to be able to ignore. Not like the train that goes by that you get used to. This is going to be new. This is going to be amazing. He's also coming in God's glory, divine glory. Not, not the, uh, the, the glory of your pastor talking in front of you right now. I'm not shining. I don't think I am. Um, there's, there's nothing special about me. I'm just a person like you. But when Jesus comes, while he will be the same person who left, he will be coming back in all his brilliant glory. In Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is, coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each according to what he has done. And Revelation 19 describes this scene in some metaphorical terms. It says that he's coming like a king riding on a horse, a white horse. And I'll just read you a, a little portion of it. Verse 12, his eyes were like flaming fire. His head were, had, was crowned with many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And it talks about banners being unfurled and this name written on it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a glorious coming. But it's also going to be a surprise. He said, watch. I'm telling you this in advance so that you won't be surprised, but it's going to be a surprise for a lot of people because a lot of people have been distracted by the alternatives that Satan has suggested. First Thessalonians 5, 2 and to 6 tells us about this. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Is it coming as a thief for God's people? No. For when they say, peace and safety, everything's good, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. You are not ignorant. He won't come like a thief for you. You are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us all watch and be sober." Revelation 6 tells about the the sixth seal, verses 12 to 17, and it describes great earthquakes and the sun becoming black and the moon turning to blood and stars falling to the earth like a fig drops its uh, figs, uh, its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. It says the sky will recede like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. And then it, it describes what this experience will be like for those who weren't prepared. It says, and the kings of the earth, doesn't matter how high up you are, how much money you have, what position you might have, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, 
Oh, and it doesn't also matter how lowly you might be. The, the, the slaves, even the free men, they hide themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, and this always gets me every time I read it, from the wrath of the lamb. They're afraid of Jesus coming because they've believed a lie about him. For the great day of his wrath has come, they say, and who is able to stand? So you have all these different things happening. And in the same context of the second coming, you have the resurrection of the righteous. When Jesus comes, the righteous are going to be raised. First Corinthians 15, 51 to 53 says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Even the dead will hear that trumpet. And we shall be changed, for this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And First Thessalonians 4 tells us something similar. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, this brings an interesting question into the mix. Are we going to be taken or are we going to be left? Where would you like to be, taken or left? Now, um, a a lot of people, when they're looking at this subject, turn to Matthew 24 and they they find this little statement that Jesus makes um, in Matthew 24, uh, 36 to 44, where he he describes the experience of... um, Kind of those that at the end of time, at the second coming, but also those at the time of Jerusalem's destruction. He was kind of packing two different ideas into the same chapter. And, and he says, um, two will be grinding, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be laying in, the, in bed, and, and one will be taken, the other left. And, and they get this idea of a secret rapture. And, uh, and there's books that have been written about it. Let me read you a little bit of it. Verse 36 in Matthew 24. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, Jesus says, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came. And notice the next words. They didn't know until the flood came and took them away. Now, the taken or left idea from uh, the secret rapture concept suggests that those who are taken are the ones who go up to heaven to be with God. The ones who are left are remaining there for great tribulation for seven years. But notice how Jesus puts it. It's the wicked who didn't go into the ark who were taken by the flood. And uh, when you look at this passage, you start to recognize When Jesus is talking about taken or left, he's saying that the ones who are left are left alive, and the ones who are taken are taken in death. Like the the, um, wicked who are calling for the rocks to fall on us, please take us because we can't handle what's about to happen. That's the idea the Bible gives us. In Revelation uh, 6, 12 through 17, these are the, the, the description of the wicked asking for that death. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, we're, we're told, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and what? Are left behind until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We, the idea of being left is the good side. It's what we want, not to be taken in death. Now, talking about these cataclysmic events can be a fearful thing. 
Earthquakes cause damage. Disease brings death. War is horrible, as we're seeing right now in Ukraine. And it's not exciting to talk about all of those things. The Bible says that there will be a great tribulation before Jesus comes. It describes islands falling into the ocean. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like, but it's not, it doesn't sound good. But the, the, the fear that might come if we're reading the Bible should be displaced by the joy and the trust that God will take care of us. And I hope that you're in that category of trusting and recognizing Jesus, the hope of Jesus' soon return. Um, but if you're not, if this subject makes you fearful or you just don't like to hear about it, then I'd like to spend just a moment and talk about what, it, what God wants us to do to be ready for his soon return. Romans chapter 3, 20, verse 23 tells us that all have fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us is undeserving of God's salvation. And it also makes it clear in Galatians 2.16 that there's no amount of perfecting ourselves that will make us worthy of God's glory, that will make us worthy of his salvation. The best we can do is on our own is to die a natural death. And the next thing that we'll know is the resurrection of the wicked in which we will face judgment with our own merits. The Bible says in Revelation 20 that um, at the second resurrection, that's the resurrection of condemnation, that, that those people will rise and they'll be judged by their works out of the books. That's the best we can do on our own. We need Jesus' salvation. In Revelation 19, just a, a little bit before the millennium, you really need to read Revelation 19, 20, and 21 altogether. It's really good. But um, there's a judgment at the end of Revelation 20. There's a millennium at the beginning of Revelation 20. And just before that, there's the great um, coming of Jesus on the white horse. And it describes the judgment that takes place there. And it doesn't say that they're judged based on their works. Because those who are judged at Jesus' second coming are judged according to Christ's righteousness. The only hope we have is for God to save us. And from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God made a way. And that way is through the person, Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life for us. God himself became man. And so there's, there's three things that we, he asks us to do in exchange for his gift of salvation. The first is to behold the Lamb of God. If we don't, if we don't see the loveliness of Jesus, then we'll never understand the wickedness of our hearts and we'll never move towards repentance. Behold the Lamb of God. Secondly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you'll be saved. Believe knowing that he is God who has taken our place. Believe knowing that he is the one who saves us and not we ourselves. And then thirdly, the Bible invites us to confess our sins. And he says, if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible promises that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the day of his second coming. He will complete our salvation. And he promises that the result of this is going to be a life transformation. It changes us when we abide in him. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he tells us that we love him because he first loved us. He promises that since he started this work, he'll make himself responsible for it. Now, is there any room in that equation for us to doubt? Do we need to worry or be concerned? 
No, it's God's responsibility. We give it into his hands. That's what it means to be saved, to surrender my life to him. And there's a psalm that beautifully demonstrates this. And I'd like you to turn there with me. Psalm 130. And we're going to close with this reading. Psalm 130. Notice how the psalmist, the, the author of this poem, is in our situation. He, he has the same experience that you and I have. He says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. You and I feel that way. Please be attentive. Let your ears be attentive in the, to the voice of my supplication, he says in verse 2. And then in verse 3, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And that's, that's the place that all of us should be in. None of us are worthy of his salvation. If you should, should take account of all of my iniquities, all of my sins, who could stand? I can't, Lord, is what he's saying. But then in verse 4, he says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, that you may be held in awe is the way that he's saying that. And verse five, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. And in verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all their iniquities. This is the promise of God. He is going to redeem us. He's going to redeem us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Let's make that personal. That last phrase where he says, he shall redeem Israel from their iniquities. Let's make that personal. He shall redeem me from my iniquities. He shall redeem you from your iniquities. The psalmist has summed up all that Jesus asks of us. I'd like to encourage you, study God's word. Spend time looking for promises, for the promises specifically of Jesus' soon return, because you'll find that more than doom and gloom and tribulation, the Bible promises redemption and hope and joy and renewal and transformation. The story of the second coming is a story of our hope. You've been listening to In the Bible with Jason Worf. If you'd like to visit us in person, come on Saturday mornings to the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church located on Highway 95, just six miles north of Bonners Ferry. You can also find us online at bonnersferryadventist.org.